Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary, Gus Morton, invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, my co-host, Gus Morton. How are you doing today, Gus? Mate, I am well. I am really well. It was a cracker of a stage. I'm pretty psyched, actually. Yeah, man. Ready to, uh, ready to talk some bike racing. All right. All right. Hey, before we get into this, I felt a little... I forgot to do this yesterday. I just wanted to wish Bob Roll a happy belated birthday. He's such a great guy, and he's a, a big part of, of the cycling community. So just kind of wanted to give old the man, not the myth, Bob Roll, a little shout out there. Happy birthday, Bobby Roll, the style master. Let's talk uh, top line. Let's talk the stage, get a lay of the land. Stage today started uh, in Bink, where the memorial for Frank Vandenberg uh, is. Did you know, just before we even go, did you know Frank, Bobby? I did. I did. I uh, raced with him on Cofidis in 1999. Obviously, kind of saw him grow up in 96, 97, 98. And when he came to the team, uh, obviously, he was a big addition to the team. Really, really good guy. I mean, one of those guys that could just walk into a room and just light it up. He could make you feel like a million bucks by just saying hello to you. If you were the maitre d' of the restaurant or the bus person, he would make you feel like a million bucks. And I know he had some issues and, you know, he passed away a couple years ago. But uh, overall, just a very, very good person. We miss you, Frank. And a stunning bike rider. I... Uh... I was a big fan of his um, growing up. Like I started bike riding about 99 and uh, I remember the Vuelta, the Vuelta that year. He just, I can't think of the state, the exact stage, but he basically just rode the entire peloton off his wheel and um, uh, including like Yana, everybody. And, um, and just like, just, just, yeah, it was incredible. It was beautiful to watch. Was he really that good? Like racing with him and riding with him? Was he just one of those guys who just could, I mean, obviously, he could just turn it on. But, like, did you get that feeling when you were racing with him? Oh, yeah. He just oozed class. Like, just his pedal stroke, the way that he floated through the peloton, it was, it was a thing of beauty, no doubt about it. And speaking of class, the stage finished today in the Champagne region in Epinay. So, Moet Chandon and Don Perignon. Uh, the finishing straight was down the street that was lined with all of their champagne houses so yeah a little touch of class today there you go 214 k's went from belgium into the france through the ardennes solid climbs at the uh at the end there which really made things spicy there was a a novel time bonus on the top of the the last climb as well which i thought was pretty cool bit of wind out there you know it was pretty pretty straightforward until those final until those final uh climbs Worth noting, too, that Wanty Group Gober team, their headquarters is around there. So, Oh, man, I would love to see their wine cellar <laughs> being yeah. in, in that area. They must have some good little bottles down there reserved for a little celebration after a victory. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's dive into it. But before we do, Bobby, it's time for our Daily Dose. All right, it's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour Trivia to play head on over to roadid.com slash TDF. Today's question, 
The Tour de France was organized in 1903 to increase the sales of which newspaper? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, which is a pair of Look Special Edition Tour de France pedals. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spray. That's roadid.com slash TDF. Man, Look Pedals. That takes me back uh, 1986-ish. I remember seeing the first pair of Look look clipless pedals and yeah that was that was a life-changing moment right watching greg lamont and and bernard Hinault go up alpe d'huez with those really cool white massive kind of blocks on their feet but you didn't have to mess with those just cranky toe straps i used to hate those things you'd make your feet go numb all of a sudden you had this this awesome i think they were yeah the first ones that came out were white and my father who worked up in aspen had the first pair of clipless pedals like in the whole Roaring Fork Valley. And everyone just thought, everyone thought he was crazy, including myself, but man, kind of caught on, didn't it? Yeah, my first pedals were Look as well. I remember my first coach being, uh, at the time it was basically Look and Time. And my my coach was like, nah, you don't want any of that Time shit. The float's all wrong, you know, like, and uh, he's like, you only ride Look, Look only. Like, Look, ratchet the ratchet the um the pedal as tight as it can go so you got no float and uh i've never had a knee injury which is quite a surprise <laughs> so yeah anyway look pedals would not mind winning a pair of those myself so you never used toe clips no i mean no, am i, was, I totally I, post... I mean i have used them like like um since since then i've, I've done like a roker a few times on era correct dude it sucks so i'm totally dating myself by admitting that i actually had a pair of those but <laughs> I was a junior, so it wasn't like I raced with him my whole career. That's for sure. Yeah, man, you got to notice the difference. You got to notice like the big technical change. I feel like I didn't get that during my my time as a bike racer. Bobby, let's talk about the stage today and how it was raced, how it was run. It was an exciting stage. Do you want to uh, do you want to talk me through it? Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, after a team time trial, it's it's a stressful day. You know, there you're up in the morning you know, kind of stressing all day, doing the recon, coming back, doing the race, then going back to the hotel, trying to get back on that normal schedule. The whole staff is exhausted because they've been out there probably since 6 a.m. trying to get everything just running like like perfect, like clockwork. I, I thought that it would be a little bit faster start, but, you know, when that breakaway of five got established, that was like, okay, we're good for a while. But you, you always knew that it was going to light up at the end. And I thought it was interesting seeing... All four of the wildcard teams were represented, represented in the breakaway today. I mean, is that like, I don't know, part of the contract? Like, hey, if we invite you to the tour, you need to light up the stages at, at certain times. I, I don't think so, but that was, that was quite, quite interesting. I feel like, you know, with, with some of these teams that have got budgets that would be close to 10 times that of, of you know, the smaller teams, it, it's got to be so difficult for them to compete consistently overall so they're just like man our our chances when we we got to get in the break you know we got to put guys in the break and they stacked it today which was which was great it's good to see that they did uh, and and that's not the biggest surprise to me the biggest surprise to me was that tim wellens who's a legitimate yeah. contender for a stage like today was in the breakaway and i'm i was just watching him going wow you know what what a sacrifice to be up here all day like what's his plan Big but risk. man that was answered you know, obviously he had the eye on the prize with the King of the Mountain jersey. 
And when he left, I mean, you see, if you want to see a way to attack your breakaway companions, go back and watch the way that he just drifted to the back, wound it up from Texas, and just whacked him on the right side of the road. The guys on the left had no idea. There was no way they could respond to that. And if they did, they, they would have had a hard time. But that's the way. Wound it up from Texas. That's a great one. He did too. He absolutely fucking launched it. But that's the way you do it, right? I see so many guys attacking from second or third wheel or maybe even trying to ride everyone off their wheel. And he he hit them out of the blue too. I mean, that was like, you know, everyone's kind of in their little, I'm going to pull through and off and then, you know, take a drink of water and relax a little bit and then whack just out of nowhere. So good on him for, for launching it. And after that, that just lit the whole race on fire, didn't it? I think... Man. When you saw when you saw him get that sort of gap, and the gap was you know very well controlled by by Tony Martin for most of the day. They left it at between four and six minutes for most of the day, and then Quick Step came up there, which was like ding ding ding. I totally forgot about Ala Philippe on a stage like this. So when you start to see the guys, the the other teams start to work, that's a very telltale sign of who's actually interested in winning the stage. They they brought that gap down you know, pretty quickly, because as we said yesterday, this stage definitely had the sting at the end of the tail and guys were getting nervous. Guys weren't, not everyone went and recon this. I know a lot of the the teams go out and recon it in the morning, but there's a difference between telling someone about it and actually going out and riding those roads and seeing the condition of those roads, et cetera, et cetera. So, wow. I mean, that was a big factor today, right? Like the conditions of the road and also the nerves, like you saw, from you know like 45k to go the like astana were really present on the front with fugel saying you know obviously ineos they're they're kind of perennially there but but they were there and those teams were really forcing the pace and kind of making sure that their guys were at the front and you could see just by virtue of of the battle going on to get to the front you know 60 riders like half the pillow was 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 hooped like after a couple of those climbs so it was on um and that's like that's one thing i think that's really difficult to kind of get nowadays when you're looking from the air or even from the road you're kind of looking down at the peloton and they seem like they're bunched up and they're kind of spread out but it's just it's just because everyone's going completely like ham just going absolutely max to get to the front and that fight to get to the front is just forcing this infernal pace so it doesn't look like it's frantic until you look at the back of the peloton you're just seeing guys just getting hooped so and and today today that that that's what happened right like that like we saw early on, like your pick of the day, Ewan dropped, Greipel dropped, you know, some of the <clears throat> the sprinters there were really like, well, uh, and even the, the, the sprinters that get over the hillier stuff were, were having a hard time hanging in. Absolutely. And wh- one thing I wanted to mention was to give props to Stefano Rosetto. You know, he was in the breakaway on the first day. He had the most aggressive riders number, that red number on the back of his jersey today. And again, in the breakaway today, uh, you know, when Wellens went, there was nothing that he could do. But, you know, this guy broke his hip back in March in multiple places out while training. Evidently, yeah, I had a, no idea about that. That's, that's an impressive comeback. He, he hit a cat. And when my wife listens to this, the first thing she's going to ask is, well, was the cat okay? You know, <laughs> not, not, to, not, not to worry about the guy himself, but cats have nine lives. So maybe, maybe he's down to eight now. But the kid came back got second very recently in the French National Time Trial Championship and then was there, you know, great first stage and there again today, man. What a what a tough kid. Yeah, he's he's obviously on form and kind of 
you know, he's like in his 30s, um, early 30s, first tour. He's left his mark on the race already and we're three stages in. I mean, he's probably going to have a hell of a third week, but hey, you know, at least he's at least he's put his hand up and gone, hey guys, I'm here. Hey, we're talking about him, so exactly. that's, uh, that's pretty pretty big thing. Let's, um, let's look at, um, at where the race was won. Like, let's talk about that quick step, just absolute gut punch that they put that, that they threw down and then Alaphilippe just finishing it off. You saw the road condition getting worse and worse there. You know, obviously they're going up through those champagne vineyards and, you know, a lot of heavy machinery, a lot of steep grades. So that, that road surface looked quite deteriorated and it seemed like a lot of it was that kind of cement road, not quite the asphalt. And there you always have to be nervous about that, that line or that gap in the middle of the road because guess what? It's the perfect size for your front wheel or either your wheels to fit into. So yeah. Jens, Jens had a name for, for those sort of things, um, you know, the gap in the middle of the road or the hay bales. He called them form fuckers because when <laughs> yeah, you think about enders. it, yeah, season enders, career enders. You know, th- these guys are going flat out on these on these roads, and one little tiny crack in the road could be EOS end of season. So yeah, when 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 Quickstep started putting down the hammer, and then Bora went up there, I thought Bora maybe mm. committed a little bit too quickly. They were uh, a few of their guys were in the hurt bag qu- quite quick, but. You know, I think they, they smelled they blood with a few of those sprinters starting, you know, like because that was right around when 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 Caleb started going out the back, and they I think quickly were like, let's let's seize on this. Um, but little did they know it was going to ratchet up another level again. Yeah, yeah, and then with with everything to play for for the King of the Mountains jersey, you know, Wellens just you know went all in. There was a full on chase behind him, run by you know two or three teams going absolute full gas on top of the nervousness of everyone else wanting to stay in the front. That, that gap got brought down, but not until he crossed that last uh, King of the Mountain point sprint. And yeah, the he moment, literally went all in, didn't he? He, he went all in. <laughs> and I've never seen anyone win a King of the Mountain sprint, cross the line, and then do like a cycle cross dismount off his bike. So obviously he had some sort of mechanical problem that it was, he was suffering with up that climb. And once he crossed the line... You know, he he's like, okay, my job is done. I'm going to be on the the podium with the King of the Mountain jersey today with a pretty comfortable lead. But I actually that was where so halfway up that climb was where Alaphilippe made the race. That's where he made the decisive attack. Right? Did you get the feeling, or was it just me, that he kind of let Wellens take that time bonus and and the the maximum King of the Mountain sprint points there? Because it seemed like if he really wanted to, he could have just gunned it. I don't know, man. Like he, he, like I don't think he expected to completely close that gap down, and he kind of came right up on the wheel at the same time. And he did give a little bit of an indication, like he might have soft pedaled that last bit because he kind of gave the the handout. But you got to remember there was eight seconds on, and and it, yeah. you know, there was a period there where it looked like he might he might be close to getting caught, uh, and that eight but, seconds would have done a lot to get in the jersey. Absolutely, but he, he I got mean, it in the end. He got it, but. First place was eight seconds, five seconds, two seconds. Just imagine if he would have lost the yellow mm-hmm. jersey by, by three seconds. But he seemed like he was, uh, I, I think Tim will very much appreciate that. But after that, it was just, you know, man against the peloton. And it was, you know, French rider coming out of Belgium, first finish in France to the 2019 Tour de France. This guy was motivated. You saw the way that he was just driving 
every single ounce of energy out of himself. It looked like he started to cramp a little bit because I kept seeing him shake his legs. But yeah, I've seen him looked- do that a bit, and then just and everyone says that, and then he just continues to dominate. I think it's just a little thing, like a little nervous tick that he does. Hey, I was a leg shaker, man. I like that. I always got uh, a little grief in the Peloton and still with my training buddies when I shake out my legs, you know, George or Christian will come up to me and go, really? Really? I'm like, yeah, it just makes my legs feel a little bit better. You know, just, you know, circulate the, the blood a little bit more. Yeah, just, just exactly. Just, you just got to relax out there, man. But, but for me, it was, never, it was never touch and go. Like watching it on TV, it seemed like, oh, you know, he's going to get caught. For me, the moment he attacked and got that gap, I said, okay, on this par- sort of parkour especially yeah. with that de- descent afterwards. I said, he's going to win the stage. I, I said, okay, that's done. But it well, was I didn't always... have as much faith as you. I will admit yeah. that. Like, like when he went, you're like, that's impressive. But when you saw like behind, right, the race behind, like all the GC guys were there. There was a few guys that kind of, you know, there's a few gaps appearing in front of their wheels, like Thomas and, and TJ. And, and even um, Bernal tried to follow and couldn't. And Mike then jumped around him, Mike Woods, and um, and started to follow. But he got like, it looked like he kind of, he hesitated for that second across the top. There was like three or four of them that came together. And they hesitated for a second before kind of half-heartedly riding as a group. And I bet you they're kicking themselves now. But when I saw that, when I saw the, the non-commitment from the, those four guys behind, I thought, ah, oh, man, he's not going to do it. Like, it's a long solo ride. But man, he, I- he well and truly did it. Yeah, and then he's one of the best bike handlers and descenders in the peloton. And, you know, he's down on his top tube in, in the super tuck position, and he's turning around to look and look to see who's coming behind him. I mean, I have not to this day yet tried to go into the super tuck. I'm just so old school that that just scares me. But, but man, it's, about, but, it's fast. It's definitely dude, fast. And he made so up, fast. what, six? He made up, like, what, six or 10 seconds or at least solidified his, his lead. And yeah, he made was... 20% of his time gap by super tucking. But also, too, like, not only was he super tucking, but, like, do you reckon he rode that finish? Because, like, he was just going full super tuck, and you're like, is, what's the corner coming up? Like, you couldn't see. Like, it was around a blind corner, and you're just like, is he just going to... And, yeah, he just committed. Um, he, either, he either reconned the finish or really has no fear and trusted the, the, the guy from his team that went out and did recon this morning. Because, yeah, yeah there was a couple that... I may one day try a super tuck on a long straight road. I will not try one on a bumpy concrete road with, with a gap in the middle of it. Um, yeah, and a going, stage the Tour de France at stake. Yeah, going, going down at 75K an hour. But yeah, impressive. fantastic win by him. Um, you know, coming into the finish, you know, obviously it looked like maybe Sagan would pick up a few more points there. But, you know, Michael Matthews and, and Jesper Stuyven, I mean, those mm. guys. Those really guys good ride sh- from those two showed that they had some HP there and even Greg Van Avermet popping up there in front of Sagan. So, you know, that green Jersey giving away those, those top five places at the intermediate sprint for, um, up to, uh, for Sagan, Viviani actually won that sprint in front of him and then giving up some more points here to Matthews, man, oh man, I tell you, it's going to be an interesting competition for the gene for the green Jersey. But, um, today we didn't see the, and maybe it was because the the win was out of the book, and you know Sagan is just a, a gamer. Like if, mm. if the win's not on the line, he's like whatever. But you know the, you saw you saw some other guys have some HP in their legs just as much as as, as Sagan. So looking forward to these sprints coming up. Uh, GC stuff. What do you reckon? Any any anyone read their head there? Anyone kind of 
win lose. I, I noticed that um, that uh, Pinot was tenth on the finish there today, um, and I know it doesn't say much, but it still says something. You know, uh, I always you always look for those early indicators. Like he's obviously feeling good if he's getting. If he's mixing it up, if he's getting in there, he's obviously got good legs. He's obviously a bit motivated, you know, whereas if you're a bit tired or a bit hurting, you're sort of like, ah, I've made it to the, you know, I've made it in the group, I'm fine. Yeah, I didn't really see much. I think it was a lot of shadow boxing out there today and, you know, non-committal, like not wanting to show their cards too much, just keeping them really close to their chest. Um, one of the guys that I saw that lost a little bit of time that maybe we don't even really have to talk about was Fabio Aru. Uh, you know, he's he's been a GC contender in, in races before, and, you know, he's, he's just not quite there yet. But um, he was not really on our, our top list of, of overall favorites anyway. No, and I think it's worth noting, like, um, huge, uh, I mean, impressive um, work for him to even just be on the start line, right? He had uh, iliac artery surgery, I think, on both legs, um, which I've had teammates who have had that before, and it's taken them, you know, a good year to come back and uh and he had that earlier this season so good on him for for lining up on the start line and and it's got to be hard too you know a grand tour winner um kind of having to swallow that pride swallow that ego and just be like yep i'm gonna have to just start from scratch again and build up and i'm gonna do it on the biggest stage so good on him yeah the the only other one that just kind of jumped out at me was rohan dennis i thought after mm. getting second a very close second to bernal in in tour de Suisse, that he may be looking to do something for the overall GC, but maybe, maybe that was like his his real big test in the mountains. Now he's in full service of Nibali, but uh, I was I was a little bit bummed not to see him or to see him losing so much time today because obviously he's not going for GC now. Yeah, yeah, same here actually. I've sort of I, I like Rowan and um and I've sort of been waiting for him to have his his moment on that three week race, and I guess we'll we'll have to wait another year, but I'm sure he's got a good one in him. Should we move on? We've got the Superfan here, um, and he's got a couple of questions for us. It's time for Superfan. Ciao, Gus. Ciao, Bobby. What a stage. Stage uh, three. Pretty exciting. I love watching the big dogs throwing some punches there late. Tim Wellens off the front, and of course, Philippe going from about 15K out. Um, nothing like watching those guys slug it out, but... Let's talk about some some upsets. It seems like as a fan, the upset wins are so much more memorable. You know, we've all seen Al Philippe win solo before, but Mike Tunison's victory the other day, such a surprise. How does that change his life? What's it like uh, as a rider to have an upset win? How does your career change after that? Um, I imagine he's going to be signing autographs. Uh, for quite some time super fan great question mate it is night and day for that guy uh he's no longer you know mike from around the corner like world tour mike he's like legit like household name and yeah i mean like a, a, a victory like that and in and in that style you know like um to do to do what he did i think there's a lot of not only like fans out there and new fans but uh, a lot of respect from the other riders, um, I, I, I would imagine as well, because, I mean, it's hard enough to win a sprint nowadays with, with a lead-out train, you know, and, uh, and he was the lead-out. So, yeah, man, that's, that's, uh, it's a game-changer. You think about he came over the top of, of Sagan, probably arguably one of the greatest sprinters of his generation. Um, pretty impressive win, something that I'll remember for a while. I mean, I, I go back and I think about some of these some of the famous Perry Roubaix wins of the last few years, um, you know, Manny Heyman, 
even Stuart yeah. O'Grady before O'Grady. that. Yep. yep. Those were, those were guys that were not picked to win that race in particular. And, and those, those wins just stick in your mind so long. Uh, Bobby, That's you have it. any, any insights into, into O'Grady and, and how that altered his career? Well, just to back up a little bit and go back to Mike, um, his life has definitely changed. You know, that's winning a stage of the Tour de France is one of those things that never gets scrubbed off your palmares, right? You you could win a stage in almost every other race, and you you may not even remember a few years down the road that somebody did that. But the Tour de France is something special, and then for him, in his case, to be to to win the race by beating Sagan, which is hard enough on a, you know, when you're the actual sprinter, let alone the lead out plan B, but to take the first yellow dirt Jersey for the whole entire country of Holland for 30 years, like, I'm sorry, you're, you're a legend. You will not be paying for beer for the rest of your life. Um, that's one of those things that is, is going to be on the tip of everyone's tongue for a long, long time. He ended the drought. He ended the drought. And that's fantastic because I mean, that country is cycling fanatical. And to, it's actually kind of crazy just to know that it's been 30 years since Eric Broekink took the jersey in 1989. Yeah, it is a crazy stat that I I didn't believe that when I first when I first heard the commentator say that I had to go and check it. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 set for for a while. Everyone knows his name now. Not only winning a stage, but doing the double and taking the yellow jersey, man, it's what, what a dream come true. And the tour is the tour, and and that's what I love about bike riding is like the tour, and you know some of the bigger one day races. That seems to be where the upsets happen more often than not, as opposed to just the everyday, you know, kind of week long, just kind of you know level two races. It seems like there's always one or two good ones at the tour. There's someone who's really you know knuckled down in the in the couple of months leading up to it and just pulls one out of the hat. They, they may happen in other races, but this is the Tour de France, right? This, this is the race that everyone in the world is watching. Yeah. And, you know, pull, pull an upset in Paris-Nice, yeah, whatever, that's, you know, headlines for a day. Pull an upset in the Tour de France, that's, that's with you forever. Um, that's one of the things that really eluded me throughout my career, which is one of the regrets is not being able to win an individual stage in the Tour de France. That would have been fantastic. But um, congratulations to him and his team. Uh, it was phenomenal. Super fan. So um, we have an interview today where we've got uh, in the room, we've got Juan Antonio Fletcher. The theme is obviously upsets. And uh, at least for me, one of the greatest upsets uh, I ever saw in cycling was uh, Ghent Wevelgum in 2004. Is that right? Is that right? Fletcher? Around then. Um, where, where you were caught on the line. Uh, and, and anyway, so I thought it would be good. You're at the tour. I thought, well, let's get him on. Let's get him on the pod and, and have a chat with him. So how you doing, man? Good, man. Thanks. I'm just, uh, about to go to the tour. So I'm still in, in Barcelona at home and I will go off, I think on Wednesday and to the Alps, to some Reckies and then back. So I'm less days on site this year and yeah, which is great. I love and hate the tour. So I, think, I feel like riding it once would be enough, and then let alone riding it multiple times, and then and then following the caravan. It's too much. <laughs> it's too much. You get lost every day until you get to the TV compound. You know, it's like nah, you don't want that. So, we've been talking about um, be, before on the show. We've been talking about the greatest sort of upsets, and and I just alluded to it in that intro there. 
Um, I wanted to kind of hear from you, like your take. I want that personal kind of story of like, you know, you're racing to the wind, you're right there. And then this person just like sucks your doors off in, in the final couple of hundred meters. Yeah, it was like, it was a very exciting race. Obviously there was lots of attacks in the, in the final. And I remember we were a group. It was like uh, a few rides there. I think Fabian Cantara was there as well. Nico Matana, obviously. Baden Cook, I think he was around there as well. And and uh, so Matan went. I can't remember. Maybe it was two or three Ks to go. And then I went again. And I closed the gap on Nico Matan. So on the radio, I had Ferretti on the radio. I was like, okay, once you close the gap on him, you give him one turn, right? And then you attack him. <laughs> So imagine like you're like, oh my God, I'm already dying trying to close the gap on him. And the first thing is like, okay, I'm going to close the gap and I'm going to rest on his wheel for a little bit or, or just give him one turn and we both make it to the finish line. So that was a crazy idea from, from IDS at that time saying like, just one turn and just go on the next one. So I kind of, let's say by doing that movement, I kind of really surprised him because he was not expecting me immediately trying to attack him. And that's what I did. And uh, open a gap. I do remember like crossing that last kilometer flag and having a gap of nine seconds. So that was the last reference I had. And on the earpiece, it was all like, you know, all like encouraging. Oh, you know, you're going to get it. It's amazing. This and that. All of a sudden, I got this <laughs> information <laughs> from the radio saying like, oh, watch out. Hold on. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know what was happening. And, and obviously, it was like, all of a sudden, all I see is Nico Matan just overpassing me. Like, I couldn't hold his wheel at all. And as you just say, it was just 200 meters to go. And he, you know, he got he got the victory again. Well, his family, wife and kids were waiting for him. And the first thing I did was just congratulate him. It's like, whoa, that was very impressive. Yeah, man. And where do you go? Like, I mean, like, I don't know. I've never experienced that. I was never been in, uh, in, in that at that level. It's got to be like brutal, right? Because everyone celebrates the winner and then you kind of finish and then you're just like, oh, well, next race, like on to the next race, the show goes on kind of thing. You're just sort of like, what could have been? <laughs> that, that exactly, especially if you, you know, if you're ignorant on what, what was going on, you know? And um, so the thing was like, was kind of mixed because of the, all the crowds and everyone was celebrating the local hero mm. getting that mm. victory. So I, I saw the Swanias from my team and, and the bus driver and everyone was like, thieves, fucking thieves. You know, he's telling them, Latry. You know, it's like, you're still in that race. Because, and, and, and that was the, like, to, to give the listeners an idea, like the immediately post-finish, it was like there was potential drafting from cars and there was, you know, there was a bunch of motorbikes in front of him, TV motorbikes and stuff. And, and that was the kind of theory that was like, that's what happened basically was he, he kind of used those to get back in and then get past you. It's pretty widely accepted. Exactly. Once I look at the footage, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. First yeah. thing, you know, in the rules, it's really like, if it's not a gap uh, bigger than half a minute, in the last kilometer cannot be any vehicle there. So that's not allowed. And the jury that day, they did allow just uh, not the TV motorbike, not just that, but also like the neutral car, uh, the jury card, a lot of things that shouldn't happen there. You know, through the years, you bump onto people that they, they say, oh, you know, 
I was there before the doping control, you know, mm. with Nick Matan mm. in the same room, or I was there at the TV production track and I saw some footage, you know, so, but at the end, I never really saw that or anything, but apparently there was some, there was people were saying there was some footage, how he really got into the neutral car and the neutral car really motor pace him to get back to the jury car. And that's when he jumped from the jury car to one motorbike and then another motorbike and then on my wheel and then he did the attack. What I can say is that I was riding at 50, 55 k's an hour, you know, we didn't have, uh, you know, power meters back in the day. So looking at that, so the reference, good reference was the speed. It's okay, I'm riding 51, nine seconds with the guy behind me. He cannot, you know, how fast yeah, he's gonna he be doing, has yeah, to be doing 60. You know? Yeah, exactly. And 60, Bob, yeah. that's a, yeah. tell, tell us, that's a speed. You don't want to lead that train, you know, it's like, not, not sort of, well, actually he lead that, he lead that himself. So yeah, exactly. he did a, he did a bit of a <laughs> Have you spoken there. to him? Have you ever spoken to him after that and been like, Hey dude, what? Like a lot. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. And I think it's like, yeah, because I don't really blame Nico Matao of, of that because, I, you know, I what will I have done in that situation? Yeah. Well, for yeah. sure, I wouldn't have like discussed with the neutral card. Please bring it back. <laughs> but, but I don't know. I don't know. That's what people say was that happened. But I don't know that. What What I know is what I've seen. And and he jumped from one card to another one. And honestly, in that situation, most likely will have done the same thing. You know, why not? This cars, it's not your fault. This cars there. So use it. And and that's what Nico did. So. I never really blame him on that way. And and Nico, I remember like in the morning, so Get Webber back in the days was on Wednesday before Paris Roubaix. And on the morning of Paris Roubaix, we chat, we had this quick chat. And Nico say, if you need some help today, I'm happy to help. So I'm going to help you out. So he was kind of like, all right, I've done something wrong. And I'm happy to help you today. And and that was it. And through the years, there's a lot of you know a lot of media and all that. They try, especially Belgian media, try to bring some controversy back and all that. But if I have to blame, for me, it was the jury who didn't didn't you know let first thing let vehicles being in between us within that last kilometer, which wasn't in the rules within the rules. And so the second thing, they didn't admit that mistake. Yeah, you really. know, so because they, really. so they, they never, they never, they never like responsibility. Fletcher, you are being your class as as a uh, as a person is just oozing out right now. I was just going to say, but that. unbelievable. You know, and that's that's why you were one of my the the best riders that I love to watch in those classics. And I watched this race in two thousand and four, and I remember saying, "Wait." who is that coming up behind in the car and then jumping and jumping? And you know what? The way that you just communicated how you feel and then it's, you know, you've moved past it. But you know what? As a, as a fan of you, as a fan of cycling, I was incredibly disappointed that I didn't get to see you do your victory salute because you had <laughs> and still have the best victory salute ever. And when you would pull back the bow and launch the Fletcher, the arrow, that's why I felt more jaded than anything. Was like, wait, I <laughs> exactly. wanted to see, I wanted to see that victory salute. And I mean, let's you know, face it, that's why we're all there, right? We're there to see the bow and arrow fired off. <laughs> we're there for the show. <laughs> it didn't happen that day, unfortunately. <laughs> no. Fletcher, thank you so much for coming on and yeah, recounting thank you so that, much. recounting that story. You're, you're a, 
you're a class act and we love listening to you on, on Eurosport. And um, yeah, we got to catch up after the tour. Definitely. Yeah. Good luck with all your rest podcast, guys. Thank you. Cheers, man. Appreciate that so much. There we go. Juan Antonio Fletcher. We could all do uh, more to be like that guy. That's for sure. Uh, a real legend of the sport. And that's like, he, yeah, to be as humble as he is, man, about that particular event. Like, oh, yeah, that's impressive stuff. So talking about upsets, I, I've never really experienced an upset per se because um, I wasn't a sprinter. Um, maybe here or there, some little thing didn't fall my way. But one of the, the biggest upsets that, that I remember was when Greg LeMond beat Fignon by eight seconds in the final time trial of the Tour de France. That, for me, was unbelievable. Like, everyone thought that that wasn't possible, and he wound up going back and making up a 50-second a deficit and then turning it into an eight-second win. Another one that really comes to mind is Chris Froome in, in the Giro d'Italia last year, stage 19. Yeah. It, it looked like he was, you know, done. And then he does this amazing attack from far out that was obviously well-planned and well-supported and comes through with the win. Um, but one of the biggest, if we're talking like real upsets in maybe not in the, 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 the Tour de France or a Grand Tour, I'd have to go all the way back to 1997 when Christophe Agnolotto won the Tour de Suisse. This, this guy got into a, a solo breakaway. He won by 10 or 15 minutes on the first or second stage. Everyone thought, yeah, he was just going to you know, come back like a, like a stone in, in the mountains. And, and that guy held on. I mean, to win the Tour de Suisse as a, a, a worker or as a, a, you know, a teammate, a Gregario, that, that was impressive. I mean, because the other guys that I just mentioned are, are legends of the sport. You know, maybe not yeah, exactly. that many people even know or remember Christophe Agnolotto, but that was one of no, those. I don't, I don't remember that name. That was one of those absolute David beat Goliath because, you know, he had a bunch of big boys that could go up those hills pretty darn quick coming after him, and he, he held them off. He held on. With that, should we should we should we talk to our should we talk to the theme? Let's talk about upsets. The greatest, you know, uh, the greatest upset of the sport is the upsets, right? Like, and that's what we all tune in. Everyone loves the underdog, you know. That's why we kind of engage in sport because you want to see that unpredictable result, right? You want to see that wild card do something. And uh, and over the years and in cycling, it's 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 been a really common theme. Yeah, that's that's why we have to race the races. You know, if if we just sat there and picked a winner off of off a chalkboard, it wouldn't be any fun. But you know, you got to put in that that human element, that uh, that guy on the the day of his life. You know, making a real big, um, amazing attack that no one ever saw coming. And a lot of these, I guess, upsets that we're talking about are little, maybe more unknown riders from smaller teams because they have the ability to be a little bit more unpredictable. I mean, those smaller mm. teams, they, they, you know, a lot of these teams, smaller teams, bigger teams, but the smaller teams also have strong riders, maybe inexperienced riders, riders that we don't know their name, but then they make a big result in a big race, especially in the Tour de France. And that's what gets them to the next level, right? That's what that, that's what piques everyone's interest. And you never know at the end of the Tour de France, you have a, a contract for a world tour team sitting, you know, sitting in your, in your mailbox. 
Yeah, exactly right. And uh, Yalinson Pantano from a few years ago, remember he had a, a breakout tour and 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 went from a from a Conti pro Conti to a to a world tour team. And that's what I think cycling's really interesting for the upset because, I mean, you know, like we we sort of mentioned it earlier, but there are teams here with budgets ten times the size of of other teams, and and also right, um, there's 170 guys in in this race, and. The, the big guys, the top teams, they can't watch and control everything and everyone as much as they try, you know, and so they, they have to kind of pick and choose their battles. And that's where I think this race is fantastic because you get these teams and they just like, they throw caution to the wind, you know, they pull a, they pull a, a crazy move and sometimes it pays off. And sometimes you see that guy you've never heard of, you know, with his gangly style, do some long solo breakaway and, and take the jersey or, or, or win a stage. And I mean, Thomas Vogler is another one who, I mean, when he, 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 when he first did it, he, he made a career out of, of, of being the underdog, I think. But um, yeah, I think that, do you, do you reckon that's it? Like why cycling has such a history of, of that is because it's just such an unpredictable race and such a difficult sport to try and control and predict. Yeah, as much as you want to try and control every variable, you, you can't. That's just bottom line. You can't. There's going to be somebody that does things a little bit differently, that has like, like I said before, that amazing once in a lifetime ride. And that is what makes, makes the race like the Tour de France so interesting. But you know what? It's also what makes like a normal group ride interesting right like you know you get together with the same you get together with the same group every day you always know who's the strongest guy but then you know when you start pace lining or start going for it all of a sudden you know there's that one guy on his best day so it, it that's that's the fun thing is this translates not only from the tour de france but into that that weekend group that you ride with your friends people are gonna have good days and average days and bad days but man you live for the good days right it's like hitting that 300 yard drive in golf like exactly you could put five balls in the water but if you hit that one drive straight as an arrow 300 yards and almost hit into the group in front of you that that's what it's all about so yeah and and sometimes you chase that your whole career we're running out of time bobby before we wrap up the show i've got one question what was your one day? What was that day that you were on? The day, the most memorable on day of your career? Real quick, just give it the, the, the top line. Ooh, that's, that's a tough one out of the blue. I would have to say that in the 2005 Inico Tour, there was the final time trial. And I reconned the course. And man, from the first pedal stroke, I just knew I was going to win. And I had a, a very popular Dutch rider uh, that I had to overcome. Eric Decker and the Nico tour is held in, in Holland. So he had, you know, all the knew all the roads and everything like that. But yeah, I just, from the moment that first pedal stroke off this, off the starting ramp through the cobbled section, through all the turns into the finish line, I, I, I knew I was going to win it. So like, that was my one day where maybe I felt like, you know, that was my special day. And it came in a time trial and I not only won the stage, but then I won the general classification as well. So that was, that was icing on the cake. Dude, there's no, there's no better feeling than that. When you turn the pedals over and you're like, I am on today. Um, I cannot remember ever having experienced that in my career, but I did as a junior and <laughs> those memories will never leave me. As always, tomorrow's stage, little preview, Bobby. Tomorrow, stage four from Rain to Nancy and 
I actually spoke with a person that spends a lot of time in Rhin, and he told me that's the way that you pronounce it. So I'm sticking with that, even though I would pronounce it Reims. So Rhin to Nancy, 213.5 kilometers, 7.3 kilometer neutral start. I mean, this is, this is a sprinter stage, right? This is a transitional yeah. sprinter breakaway scenario. It's not going to be totally interesting. We do have two Cat 4 climbs that aren't going to matter because now that, that Wellens has the jersey by such a big point lead, that's safe for the day. Uh, we do have a sprint in between those two climbs with 147 kilometers to go. Um, very straightforward looking sprint. I think it's going to be one of those really cool helicopter footage mass group sprints. Let's hope that everyone keeps rubber side down. My pick for tomorrow is Viviani. I'm going to go with, uh, uh, no, Ewan, Ewan, Caleb Ewan. There we go. Indecisive done. Caleb Ewan and decision made. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see because, uh, I've picked Caleb for the first two stages and he, he hasn't won, so the the day that I don't pick him, he 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 may have it's a chance. Win. He may have a chance. Or That's hey, good. what about this? Maybe there's going to be an upset. Ooh, upset! Well, we can only hope. Will the breakaway? It's possible. Make... There's a there's a there's a little there's a little kicker at the end there, but we'll will see. the will the breakaway yeah. make it? Who wants to commit to bringing that back? All those questions will be answered tomorrow. That's all we have time for. Um, Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, the support we've had, the feedback we've had from, from everybody listening along has been really good. We're trying to make the show better and better. Um, keep following. You've got to get at us on Twitter, at Velo News Voices. Put your socks on on VeloNews.com. Put your socks on on SoundCloud. Bobby, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Gus. Thanks, Fletcher. Yeah, thanks, thanks Fletcher. Take care, everybody. Catch you tomorrow. Hey, Gus, have you ever wanted a T-shirt featuring Bob Roll riding an ostrich? Evidently, this was a 2012 cult favorite. I, yes, I've never even heard of it until now. Give me one, please. How do I get it? Well, Road ID has released their Bob Roll-inspired Let's Ride T-shirt. Very limited quantities. So if you're an admirer, if, if you like Bob like, like we do or even ostriches for that matter, hurry over to roadid.com slash Bob before they're all gone. I, <laughs> I like that. I'm, I'm, I would, yeah, I want one. I consider Bob a bit of a style icon, so yeah, I'm getting one. Sweet. That was good. Nice work, Bobby. Let's do three, two, one, cut.